You're listening to Represent, the QueerMusicals.com podcast. Hello and welcome to Represent, the QueerMusicals.com podcast. My name's James Lovelock and my guests today are Elanda Moore and Tariq Jarrett. And we're going to be talking about all things to do with representation uh, in theatre, perhaps in other mediums as well. Uh, but I'm going to get Elanda and Tariq to introduce themselves first. Uh, so Elanda, do you want to say a little bit about uh, what you do and uh, some of the things that you've been in? Hey, my name is Elanda Moore. Um, I'm an actor and um, recently I was in a production of The Normal Heart at the National Theatre and I played um, the character of Craig Donner. Um, I also, before that, was in a play called Barbershop Chronicles where I played a character called Ethan and some other musicals and plays as well. Uh, Tariq? Hi everyone, I'm Tariq Jarrett. I'm also an actor. Um, recently I was in a production of Daddy, a melodrama at the Almeida Theatre. I played a character called Franklin before that, I just finished a run of Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light. Excellent. Now, I should say this is the first time that I have recorded this podcast in a posh studio. <laughs> and that is the third time that we've done the introductions <laughs> now, because I keep on pressing all of the wrong buttons. Uh, but never mind. We live um, and we learn. <laughs> we do, yes. Uh, so I will, I will do the story again that we did just now, which was about uh, the fact that uh, we met at uh, Legally Blonde uh, at the Open Air Theatre um, uh, a few weeks back. So we struck up a conversation. And I don't usually just Pick, like pick people up off the streets to be on my podcast but actually <laughs> um, yeah I'm really glad I did as well uh, because it's it was a really interesting production I think it opened some quite interesting conversations mm. uh, maybe that would be a good place to start just as it's something that I guess we've all got in common so we can all sort of right. talk a little bit about and it's one of the amazing things about that particular production is the way that it was cast yeah. and um, the fact that we had actors from um, all sorts of different backgrounds. Uh, there were trans actors, non-binary actors. Mm -hmm. And so actually, if you haven't seen the original production, it's um, it's quite interesting to kind of come into mm. it as, as if like this is the norm for this mm -hmm. sort of musical theatre. And uh, I think it made sense. To me, seeing this production, I was like, I presumed that it wasn't written for these. Actually, mm. well, I knew because they made a big deal of it sure but i was like i know that original production was probably mostly if not all white production yeah. mm. so seeing the way that this was cast not even in terms of just race but uh gender and mm. um um in different so many different ways i was like it just makes sense to me like this absolutely and then in my opinion it, it brought the piece new to new levels like the, that song chip on your shoulder which emmett mm. sings i'm not sure the actor's name but i loved him i thought he was brilliant black actor uh, and Michael Ahome uh, yeah he was brilliant yeah. but the whole song was brought to a new level because of that the context of the character was talking about kind of coming from a working class harder background and making making your way and it kind of so I think that that can happen if with if people cast things in certain ways you can elevate the work to a new level if you bring it into a new sphere you know new actors performing it and I thought that Lily Blum really did that it's something that you gain a lot of by changing existing roles which were not necessarily written for people the people or the the kind of background that, of the person that's playing it now. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of one thing that, like you say, that chip, on, I cannot imagine, well, I can because I've seen it, you've but seen it, yeah. chip on chip on my shoulder is is weird when you've got a middle class white bloke singing it. <laughs> yeah. right. It just doesn't, it never, it doesn't hit the same way. Yeah. Um, but then there's also, I guess, the argument for things to be written specifically for people 
who come from the background of the so like uh, with Daddy a melodrama, mm-hmm. uh, which was I've got to get the right Jeremy Jeremy O'Harris. O'Harris yes. that's it. Yeah, um, and so that that's very specifically written. Mm-hmm. Um, like like his other work as well. Did you yes. know much about um, Jeremy's work before you started on Daddy? Before starting Daddy, I didn't know much about Jeremy. Mm. Um, when I first started auditioning for it, I followed him on Instagram and was like looking him up um, and quickly realized why he was a big deal. Like a lot of my friends knew so much about him. Um, so then, yeah, I started off with that. Um, I think one thing about Jeremy that he's happy to lean into is that he's very controversial. Yeah. Um, we had, um, so just to give uh, some people who may not know a bit of context about Daddy, um, I always feel like I should call it Daddy and Melodrama because that's the full title, like just to give it its justice. Um, in the play, it's about a young black artist. He is in a relationship with an older white man and it's set in LA and it's about so many things um but that's the basis of the story um one thing that jeremy likes to do is what he calls a blackout performance mm-hmm. um so it's where people who identify as black or black people come to are invited to come to this performance it's not a thing it's not saying if you are not black do not come but it is to encourage more black people into theater because not many black people uh, grow up going to see the theater i didn't i feel privileged to have got into the theater industry because it wasn't accessible to me growing up um so yeah that was in a way even away from his material uh, the way that he approaches theater for example the blackout performances um is controversial in that way i think with things like that and the i don't know if there was backlash but the controversial or different casting of Legally Blonde, things like that excite me because when people get mad (laughs) at things that I think are important to kind of um, change the space of theatre as as we currently know it, um, I think it's exciting because it forces people to, or I would want it to force people to look at themselves or look at things how they currently are and see, oh, well, it actually works if we try things another way. Yeah, I think that blackout initiative is something that's really mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also, I've noticed, particularly when I'm in the States, that there's there are, what tends to happen is if the people are on the stage, mm-hmm. if the musicals or the plays are about a certain community, mm-hmm. then that community tends to be better represented in the audience. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and I was wondering whether you've had sort of any experiences like that where you feel like maybe maybe you've seen yourself represented more than you would usually. I don't know. I mean, I definitely, um, I played Barbershop Chronicles, which is by Inuit Elums. Um, I first saw it, it was at the National in the Dorfman. And it's about um, a group of, African men in a barbershop and the barbershop kind of gets transported from London to Africa, different parts of Africa. And it's kind of about men and that the Mm. barbershop is kind of a space for like a therapy space almost. And when I went to see it, you come into the theatre and there's all these boys with barbershop chairs grabbing the audience, putting them in chairs, pretending to give them trims. You've got like Afro beats blasting out. And as soon as I walked in, I looked around. I've never seen so many black people in the National before. Straight away, I was just like, I'm going to love it. You can feel the vibe already. You know, people were shouting out. It's much more of a kind of open environment. And the play, I mean, it touched me so deeply to the point where I was like, I have to play that part. I was lucky enough that an audition came a bit later for the tour and I just went in and was like, I have to do this. 
But um, yeah, the, we toured to a few different places. We went to the Manchester Exchange. We went to Sheffield Crucible. Um, and we had a woman, Fuel Theatre was the production company that produced it. And they had a woman whose job it was to do audience liaison. So she made sure there were black people in the audience re- doing outreach programs. Oh, over. And that made such a huge difference to the show because you felt your community were there. And a lot of times people came up to us and said, you know, we've walked past this theatre many times. We did not know that we could come in. We did not know this space was for us. And to come in and to see our lives and our experiences on stage, you know, it means a lot to them. I mean, there's one story we had um, a pupil referral unit of boys come to see the show. They'd never been to the theatre before. And the start of the show, when we're kind of getting audience participation, they were sat there with their hoods up, like, (laughs) we are not getting involved. They were literally like, do not touch me. We're not getting involved. Leave us alone. And my um, scene kind of ends the play. And at the end of the play, I looked out and I saw one of the boys and he had his hood down and he was just streaming with tears, just crying. And it, it sort of, sh- I stopped for a second. I kind of forgot what I was doing because I just thought, wow, wow. that, you know. Mm. And at the end, he came up and kind of said, I've never seen anything like this. This has changed me. Like, I thank you so much. And it's, you know, it really means something. So it's really important for production companies to spend that money on, you know, something yeah. like a blackout performance or getting that audience in because it makes a huge difference. And it is, it does make a difference in the sense that when, so Blackout was a sole, um, a solo performance. And then the next day, one thing that Almeida does, they do a 25 and under performance. And I think it's for mm-hmm. free. Um, and I think they do that with all of their shows. I might be wrong, but I think they do it with all of their shows. So back to back, we had two audiences that were completely different to the traditional mm. Almeida audience. Mm. And I don't know what it was like on Barbershop Chronicles, but it's like when you have an audience that represents a certain group or a certain demographic, they respond to different parts differently. So different. They hear things differently. And it's like, especially when you go from, I don't know what, four weeks of rehearsals, then you're a certain way in the run. All of that foundational work is there. All of the um, delving into the meaning behind the words and like character relationships is there. But then you get into performance and then the audience, I I always think of it as the audience kind of um, uh, reminds me what we're doing. So sometimes Mm. they'll respond to something and I'm like, oh yeah, 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 that joke's there. Um, But hearing it with uh, either the young audience or the black audience, they heard stuff that either I was like, right, you hear it too. Not everyone else hears it Mm. with, with the traditional Almeida audience. Or they would hear stuff that I was like, oh, I'd never gone that deep or I'd never heard it in that way. Mm. So I think that is an interesting thing. I don't know, was it like that on Barbershop as well? Oh my God, it was so much. I mean, you know, we had, there's a lot of humor and a lot of it specifically kind of African humor. And yeah, some yeah. of the, we went to, when we were in Bristol, we had a predominantly white audience and they just, it wasn't the same. Some people were laughing at the characters and not mm. laughing at the content. Mm-hmm. And we kind of said, we need black people in this audience because mm-hmm. it changes the room and it changes the piece. It's so. also funny to me. There were certain things that <laughs> I think Jeremy wrote to make people feel uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and it was interesting going out into the, um, if I had people in hearing their experience. So there were certain jokes or certain lines. Um, the character, um, the white boyfriend of my character franklin um he kept calling franklin his little naomi that was his pet name Mm. and every audience black audience member that i had in they found that uncomfortable yeah i did um (laughs) right i did as well um but like you'd hear laughs in those moments and it was for me it was like maybe these people feel awkward so it's awkward laughter maybe some people just out and out find that funny but um, it was interesting to me speaking to the black audience members who I had in. They were like, that line on its own was uncomfortable. Hearing someone next to me laugh out loud made me feel even more uncomfortable. So I was like, that's interesting. Mm. And I think that's what Jeremy wants. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that is really interesting because I I noticed that sometimes uh, as as a gay person going into mm. LGBTQ uh, when there's uh, specific LGBTQ content mm -hmm. in in musicals or films or plays. Yeah, I, I, that's that's really interesting. That and it is one of the things that I think theatre has struggled with is trying to find a way to get different audiences in. Mm. And it's great to hear that there's these initiatives that are happening. Yeah. I know that there's the Black Ticket Project as yes. well, yes. Um, which is uh, another way. I mean, again, it's I guess it's limited to the people that are contributing to it as to how many people it can help, but it certainly helps get more people more, into the yeah. theatre. I mean, in my opinion, it's it's just not enough, though. I mean, the the reality is you have to spend the money. You know, yeah. these, mm -hmm. there are these productions that are making a lot of money, and some of that money should go back into making sure that the audience, you know, the, if you're creating a piece that's for a certain audience, you need to do some work to get that audience in. People are not just going to... The problem in this country is we have a classist system which kind of suggests that theatre is for a certain type of yeah. people mm. and that other people it's not for. And so you have to do that work in school so that young people from a young age are already kind of indoctrinated into the theatre and feel like they're welcome. You have to do that from a young age. And then, you know, for other communities, I mean, The Normal Heart was similar. I had a little bit of a problem when there was an incredible production that the National weren't spending enough money to get young queer people into this play because for me, it was a play that was so important for queer people. It's our history. And we had a few conversations where I kind of said, we need to do that. And, you know, it didn't, didn't happen as much as I wanted it to. But I think it's really, really important that those people, specifically producers, spend the money. It's one of the things that, I mean, I used to be a secondary school teacher and this was going back probably about 12 years now. And it's one of the things that's always been really diff difficult because people don't want to talk about sexuality when they're talking about teenagers. Mm -hmm. And so right. they can't identify the queer teenagers because it's never something that's talked about. Okay. And it's And it's, it really, it concerns me. And that's why it's so great that we've got shows now like Heartstopper, um, mm. that are targeting that specific age of of um of children really or of teenagers mm. um it's it is really interesting this idea of getting getting the audience in that the play is meant for mm -hmm. um and thinking about and and I think you're right I think it does, we do need to think about how the theaters which are hopefully making a bit of money on these shows are getting are getting people into um mm getting people in it's interesting uh what you just said there about um not being able to identify the queer students mm. because i i think that with the lgbtq plus community it's very over sexualized mm. in the sense that yeah. it's like if you're a like I'm, I'm sure many people have experienced this if you're a queer teenager or a child it's like oh well how do you know um, because you think of it as like, well, you're too young to be thinking about people in that way. Mm. But it's like, if you turn that on its head with a heterosexual person, you wouldn't, as a child go, uh, to a child go, how do you know that? You shouldn't be, th you just accept it's it. Given. Like, right, yeah. it's a given. It's like the default. Like, if you're not that, then it's like, how do you know that? That's no, it, this might be a phase. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's that's mm. just interesting. That I mean, that's that literally the conversation that's going on in America, isn't it? There's a lot of... Yeah, I mean, the Republicans are saying you're over-sexualizing our children. They shouldn't be learning about um, trans issues. They shouldn't be learning about homosexuality at such a young age because it's radicalizing them and because it's sexualizing them. Mm. But there is a difference between, you know, sex and love and identity. You know, they're two different yeah, things. Yeah. Teaching someone about who they are is, is not, nothing to do with sex. It's just yeah, with and I think that's the, the where it's been blurred 
to the point um, why that's why people uh, are like, oh no, it's we shouldn't be talking about this. We shouldn't be talking to children about this, um, which is damaging because, in my opinion, mm. because I think you know, if someone ultimately we know who we are as people, um, and I think if an individual knows who they are at I don't know, 14 years old, but they're constantly told, oh no, you don't know, this is a phase or whatever they're told, then of course it's going to shape them or shape their mind to, they're, they're always going to be who they are. And then maybe down the, later down the line, they'll come to terms with, um, for example, their sexuality. Um, but yeah, I think it's just damaging if we're constantly telling younger people to nip that in the bud <laughs> when it comes to identity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, I should think I'm probably 15 years older than you, maybe a little bit more than that. And I definitely, when I was at school, it just wasn't something that was spoken about. Right. But me being gay was not uh -huh. just to do with sex. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was yeah. partly to do with sex. You know, yeah, people yeah, yeah. have, you know, children will have a sexual awakening at some stage, but it wasn't, that wasn't the first thing I knew about being gay. It was, mm -hmm there's all sorts of other things that are part of it mm. and i think you're right i think we miss that and again one of the i think one of the things that makes heartstopper such a, a good television show is that sex is it. not sex is not part of it i really recommend it uh, I, but i shall not go on about it <laughs> for ages and ages but yeah so thinking about that can you think about when you were when you were younger were there certain plays films tv shows actors whatever it was that you really uh, that I helped you to identify yourself? I mean, for me, it, I grew up in a very working class background. Mm. We didn't go to the theatre, really. Sure. I think I saw maybe a pantomime or something. And, you know, mostly it was something like EastEnders. So, I mean, mm, we would yeah. sit every night and watch EastEnders. And these kind of, you know, soaps, which you kind of see as mean, menial, actually allowed me a look into lots of different mm. kinds of people. I remember there being a gay character and being like, oh, that's, I had no idea what that was. I didn't know that that was me, but I yeah. sort of learned about it through that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, something like EastEnders, then Coronation Street and Emmerdale mm. and all those kind of soaps were kind of mine. For me, and I, I tell this story all the time, I, the first um, program that I watched that made me go commit to acting um, was a BBC um, dramedy, I guess, called Hustle. Um, the lead character in that is played by Adrian Lester, a dark-skinned black man. Yep. And um, to me, I was like, you can tell by the way that I talk, I'm not the stereotype, stereotypical black man. Mm. Um, and I remember growing up as a child, I was like, oh, well, I don't sound like a stereotype. I'm not going to be able to be an actor because I'm not going to be able to play a thug. I'm not going to be able to play someone who's, uh, you know, all of these negative or damaging stereotypes. And then seeing Adrian Lester, who was presented as a very well-spoken, he was a criminal. Um, I will say that in this because it's about um, a group of grifters. Um, but he was presented as a well-rounded, multifaceted, colourful character. Um, he was a lead of this thing. And... I think for the most part, he wasn't <laughs> playing all of these damaging stereotypes. So for me, that was the first time I'd seen a character on TV um, that represented me um, more truthfully than I'd ever seen before. Yeah. I loved Hustle. It's one of my favorites. I, I have still watched love it. it so many times. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one it. of those shows where it's, 
you you kind of I'm I'm quite an anxious person. I mean, I have right. anxiety, and so I struggle watching anything where I think, oh my goodness, this could have a tragic ending. <laughs> right. And the right, thing right. with hustle is, quite a lot you know, <laughs> it's gonna be okay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely has a formula, and I I like that. I rate mm. that. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that I struggle with a little bit as well is that I find quite often as a gay person that I'm only allowed one box. Uh, so uh, people will, my sexuality, I'm very open about. Um, mm-hmm. It's part of what I teach, it's part of what I research. My mental health and my health in general is something that I find there's less room to talk about sometimes. And this this idea of kind of having to... Um, having to choose your box, you know, you can't be gay and disabled or you can't be, right. you know, bisexual and black or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder about sort of roles where you find that you can explore the intersections between different parts of identity. Mm. I mean, for me, it was um, mixed race, working class mm. and queer. So it was um, <laughs> um, lots of boxes to fill, yeah, never yeah, really yeah. knowing where I fitted in racially you know sexuality wise or class wise and always kind of feeling lost and coming to characters and kind of being like what is my voice what do I have to say what do I and learning that actually that experience is what I need to bring you know that that feeling of never fitting in a lot of the characters that I play are those kind of lost boy kind of characters and when I understood that my experiences can go into the characters and and you know, can be can work that was kind of when i kind of found my my lane but yeah still even now i still feel like i don't specifically know who i am i don't i don't think anyone ever really does i think you're constantly just journey. trying to, it's a journey and you're just constantly yeah. trying to work out who you are we get to do that on stage in front of lots of people <laughs> which some would say is crazy but um i enjoy a lot but yeah it's kind of intersectional sectionality of who you yeah. are is kind of all yeah i think uh, for me, it was Daddy Plain Franklin, um, because before that, and this isn't a criticism, but before that, I hadn't played a character that belonged to so many different groups. Yeah. Um, so I think that sometimes, and this isn't true for everyone, but sometimes you, it's helpful to see something, see an example or an existing example of something or someone yeah. that represents you in some ways, all the ways, one way, before you can then commit to that identity or commit to that lifestyle or commit to that career or whatever it may be. Um, And like I say, for me, um, Jeremy did a great job of writing Franklin as a black, well, he's, I think he's gay. We we didn't go too deep into that, but he's, you know, and, and, and um, religious as well. Um, one thing that was so interesting to me in Daddy is that his uh, uh, Franklin's mother is a Christian woman, but like a devout Christian, and would um, um, cite Bible scriptures, you know. But sexuality of her son was never an issue. Like, there's no indication that that was a th- ever going to be an issue. Um, and she loves him um, regardless of that. Um, so I think, yeah having so many boxes that were ticked in that, I was like, wow, this um, this is real. This exists, you know. If you're interested in LGBTQ plus representation in musical theatre, check out our website, www.queermusicals.com for lots more information about musicals with LGBTQ plus characters. It's lovely when... The idea that all these boxes as well, uh, 
you know, kind of moving away from them, the idea that mm. the identity is fluid as well. Mm. And that actually, you know, now here I am at, what am I now, 43, and I'm very different to the person that I was when I was 23 or 28 or mm-hmm. 33 or whatever it is. And actually some of the the kind of ways I would have described myself then are different to the ways that I would describe myself of now. Course. And so often we miss that when we're talking about um, when we're talking about even even if it's something that doesn't change like race, mm-hmm. there still is an attitude towards race that might or, or mm-hmm. an idea of where you fit that might change. And I think even as a white person, that's mm-hmm. something that I've learned having come from a, an all white area when I was growing up, taught at an all white school, all these things. And then suddenly realizing there is a whole kind of <laughs> a whole other world out there that is so important and needs to be part of you know, mm-hmm. needs to be part of consideration. Yeah. I mean, going back to musical theatre and talk, I think that's one of the biggest problems is that the pieces are written for mostly white people mm. in white rooms with white creatives. So those conversations just don't come up. Yeah. And then suddenly, when they're faced with the, the conversation, they're like, "Oh, we didn't, we didn't even think." You know, the, <laughs> and I guess that's a elite classes classes system too, because to be educated, say, in music and to be able to play an instrument and to be able mm. to compose and to be able to do all these things, a lot of you have to be kind of have a lot of money and be, you know, very affluent. So it's sort of changing that and getting black people specifically, I think Mm. black creatives into a room, Mm. black composers, Mm. you know, black choreographers, all those people into the rooms, making the decisions and creating work Mm -hmm. is going to change from the Mm -hmm. top down. I think which kind of needs to happen. I think there was a moment where I fell out of love with musicals Mm. because I think musical theater as an industry, and it's not on its own in this, but it, um taps itself as being all inclusive and you know it's for everyone and i think why i fell out is because i truly truly believed that and then when i entered the industry as a professional i was like well that's not the case mm-hmm. like people not everyone is included not everyone can get into it um so i think and again musical theater is not on its own in that way but i think why i fell out of love with it is because i truly believed that and I think it is starting to change. Um, it's not changing as uh, quickly as TV film, for example. And it's not changing as quickly as it is in America. And that's not to say, that's not to let America off and say that America is perfect. Um, I remember, I can't remember what interview it was, but Sandra O oh and Kerry Washington were talking about representation behind the camera yeah. in the UK. And they were, I think it's fair to say that they were shocked by the lack of representation that there was behind the camera. And it was interesting to me because they're two women of color. I pre- Sorry, women, of, people of color. I prefer to use the term world majority. So they're two people from the world majority yeah. and um, living in America. Uh, I think Sandra O's from Canada, I think, mm. or grew up in Canada. Um, so yeah, to me, it was interesting because I was like, I know America's not perfect, but the fact that they're saying that it's so far ahead Mm. and it makes sense because I hear a lot of British talent, not just actors, but a a lot of British talent going over, they get a certain way in their career and they talk about there being a ceiling for them. Um, whatever, whether that's due to their race or their gender, gender or their, uh, place on the social strata. Um, and then, they go over to America and then they find more opportunities over there. Um, so that made sense to me when they were saying that. It's it's bizarre as well, isn't it? That, that mm. it's 
that it's taking such a long time yeah. for these things to change. And I think you're right, particularly in the UK. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the UK sometimes is a little bit further ahead on some things to do with LGBTQ um, representation, mm-hmm. which is, again, you know, what I've been researching the last few years. Yeah. But it does, one of the things that's really noticeable, just looking at musicals with LGBTQ characters, there are so few musicals, particularly in the UK, mm. where the LGBTQ characters are black or mixed race or Asian or mm. or disabled or deaf or any of those things. And if you go to America, mm-hmm. there are shows that are being written uh, with all sorts of different people in mind. I mean, thinking right. about A Strange Loop, particularly, mm. which is on Broadway yeah. at the moment, but um, also um, Choir Boy and all sorts of different musicals that have kind of really sort of got to know that there is more to the LGBTQ community than just white gay men, (laughs) which, you know, I think is really important. Yeah. 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 I saw, and I, you can read into this what you want, but I saw, um, it was a tweet. It was something like, um, as a white gay, I think it was specifically men, but as a white gay person, you are white first like that is the identity or that is the undeniable part of your identity first before um you are gay you can read into that what you will but um i think yeah you're right in the sense that when it comes to uh queer stories or queer representation it's weird and it's the same as i've experienced it so i'm not talking from first-hand experience but um Uh, with feminism it's like there is white feminism um and there's white um uh queer stories and that is almost accepted as that is the story okay yep that's cool let's wrap that up it's like whoa there are other people that are (laughs) there yeah (laughs) there are other people who have stories who have shared experiences um that uh are not white and they have just as much to say um in whatever the field is i think that one of the things that interested me actually Yolanda, looking at some of your work is your spoken word and mm. poetry and um I, I i've seen it i've seen a little bit of it and i love it and i oh, think it's thank you. It, it's such a it's such a direct way to express things I think. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you got involved in that and where that started for you. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I just um, always felt like I wanted to write, but I got a D in English. I didn't, um, I didn't do very well academically and I didn't believe that someone like me could write. I thought that was something that was reserved for only a certain kind of people that wasn't me, white, rich, <laughs> straight people. Um, and so I, it was during lockdown, actually, what I... Um, lost a job I was meant to do a play on the West End um, and a TV job as well and I kind of was left with nothing I thought right I'm going to try this writing thing and I just started to kind of write these poems um, I think it came from a place of sort of anger of not having yeah. a voice and kind of using them um, and I was really into Roald Dahl and Dr. Zeus when I was younger so that kind of simple poetry mm. that was a little, just a little bit more you know it wasn't very complex um, and from that kind of characters kind of evolved so I made a piece called The Ballad of Joe Bloggs which was a um, kind of slightly racist football hooligan in a cafe, kind of talking directly to camera um, and kind of discovering his racism and <laughs> as, as yeah. it went. Um, and it kind of started from there. So I yeah, started to make these kind of films um, and I'm making another one um, in August called The Ballad of Peter Penniless, kind of about um, the cost of living crisis. And yeah, so it's Amazing. just kind of rolling on. And 
the great thing about social media, I do think it has its problems, but also you can put something up and it can gain traction. And that's really kind of exciting for, I think, writing specifically and people's mm -hmm. voices. So, yeah. I always think that's quite, um, that's a very brave thing to do because it's like one thing being an actor saying words that are written by another person, but then putting your face to your own words. It's terrifying. Like yeah, I'm putting some, because naturally as artists, we're not really meant to have that direct feedback. You're meant to kind of you know, do something on stage and, and for a mm. certain amount of time and whatever. On social media, you get instant reaction. You either get people who love it and loads of likes. And, you know, sometimes I think I put something on TikTok the other day and it was like 50,000 people wow. saw it and all these amazing Whoa. comments, which is great. But sometimes you put something up, which is of equal quality. Yeah. But the algorithm doesn't pick it yes, up or yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. And, you know, a thousand people watch it and three people set, do a thumbs up and you feel like, oh, my work is awful. Mm. So you kind of just have to keep throwing it. And if mm -hmm. it sticks, it sticks. If people like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't and keep churning it out. But social media is very, I do find it really tricky because that kind of gratification is not necessarily good for your brain. So you have to kind of take <laughs> it easy, you know. Of course, of course. That really challenges me as well, actually, that sometimes, and I've, I've watched quite a bit of your work and I don't think I've, I've liked any of it. And actually that's, <laughs> I think that's a really important thing that we should remember when we're looking at creator's work and it's direct. And if we've spent the time watching it and we've enjoyed it, and especially if it's changed us, which your work does, oh, I think that there's, you know, that, I, that is a, a call to action for me to make <laughs> yeah. sure that I'm, because I'm, I'm lazy with that. So I don't know if I'm lazy or just like quite a private person. I, I don't really want everyone, because I, I noticed on Twitter the other day yeah. that you can actually click on likes. Oh, you can oh, see yeah. And you can see everything yeah, yeah. that I've liked. And I was like, oh, that tells a story. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I've started to do? Sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know if that can be in public. Um, so I'll also like send it to someone. Oh, so yeah, I have like nice. a history of it. <laughs> or you can bookmark it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talking about socials, um, mm. the two, I can't remember the name, the two girls that did that Bridgerton, the musical, they, they yeah. won a Grammy from it. You know, they use social what? media. Have you not seen it? No. Oh, it's so wicked. So it's like they watched Bridgerton and decided we're going to write songs for this for this season. Mm, and they yeah. turned it into an album. And the songs That's are so incredible. brilliant, these two girls. And they won a Grammy from that, from putting it on TikTok and creating this whole movement of, so they had people sort of duetting them and singing the duet songs with them. And like, so the power of social media, specifically talking about musical theatre, is sort of really exciting of how we can kind of reclaim the genre and create new work online and that yeah. kind of... Um, there was like a Ratatouille the musical as well, on TikTok, <laughs> which that. Lucy Moss was involved with. Which oh, kind of, is it? Just people like writing their own lyrics mm. and writing their own songs and creating something together, which I think is really exciting. Trevor Buffone, who's uh, another academic, has written, I think is, has written or is writing a book on TikTok musicals at the moment. Oh, wow, wow. Um, and so, yeah, it's, a, it's and one of the things that I love about the things we're talking about here is it's kind of, I don't know about if democratise is the right word, but mm. it's certainly giving access to more people yeah so you don't have to be you know really rich you don't yeah. have to have you know daddy doesn't have to have a studio <laughs> you know you don't have to have the latest equipment whatever it is yeah and, i mean even even thinking about um laptops and computers and that kind of thing i mean if obviously there's a barrier there to get to that stage where you've got that but if yeah. you've got access to the internet and you've mm -hmm. got a computer you can pretty much even a phone you know, yeah a yeah absolutely can, that's yeah. I'm, I'm so behind the times i forgot my <laughs> telephone can do that as well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really exciting and it's for me it's vital to the genre that we move forward and we allow young people to keep creating i mean i don't want to slag anyone off but there's some there are some certain Names. composers <laughs> in musical theater that mm. i do think need to just 
give it a rest and allow some other people to make some work because it it, it stops speaking to the majority and start to speak to a small minority. And I think we need to help people up mm. and allow them to create too. It's really very important. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're enjoying it, don't forget to subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast service. If you want to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at Queer Musicals or you can follow me at Dr. James Lovelock. I've been talking to a lot of actors and creatives recently as part of the research that I'm doing. And these people are so wise and have so many things that that should be part of what's happening with theatre and musical theatre and writing and representation and all those things. And it's about trying to find ways to make sure that different people are being heard and so that things are are starting things start to change a little bit. Mm. Tariq and I were talking about this a little bit because we both just come back from Los Angeles. Whoop whoop. Um, <laughs> Rub it in. <laughs> Sorry, Alan. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but um, one of the things there is that there is a specific theatre, the East West Theatre, which specifically puts on plays and musicals for um, the Asian community. And there's a big Asian community okay. in Los Angeles because there's Chinatown, there's Little Tokyo, mm. there's all yeah. sorts of. Uh, all sorts of areas there and there's part of me that thinks that's so brilliant yeah. and that's totally important for that community but also I want people to go and see that that are not necessarily from that community yes. and it's it becomes such a yeah. a difficult it's the same with you know when we're thinking about uh, theatres that are specifically doing LGBTQ work or mm-hmm. um, you know the wonderful theatres like Grey Eye that are doing work with uh, uh, dis- disability and deafness and that sort of thing yeah. and how do we encourage people? And I, I say this as somebody, you know, that is part of one of these communities. Mm-hmm. How do we encourage people to go and see things from outside of their community and outside mm-hmm. of their experience as well? Mm-hmm. That Yeah, that is interesting. And I think that, so with certain places so like Barbershop or Daddy, there are shows, not just, but a lot about blackness. I think... We want, obviously, we don't want to just be preaching to the choir every yeah. single night. We do want to include more black audience members, for example. Um, however, when you have audiences that don't uh, represent it, sometimes it does feel like um, <laughs> like they're voyeurs. So mm-hmm. sometimes it can feel like, oh, that was such a beautiful story, a beautiful insight to that life. Okay, I'm going to carry on with my life now. Mm-hmm. Um so I think it is an important question. How do we invite people who are um, new to this story or whatever uh, the piece may be? Um, and how do we invite them in a way that, or how, how do we get them to leave um, feeling impacted mm. by it? Yeah. That is a very interesting question. I think kind of going back to what you were saying is all about kind of these spaces, like in America, they have that theater and, mm. I, what we need, I was speaking to Dominic Cook, who directed um, The Normal Heart, and kind of was talking to him about musical theatre and saying, why do we, is it not the same here as it is in America? Mm-hmm. And he said something quite profound to me that was, over there, they have er- experimentational spaces where you're allowed to fail. You're allowed mm-hmm. to create something where everyone goes, oh, that didn't really work. Never mind, let's create something else. And we don't have that here. For, we do for plays. So the Royal Court, for example, is yeah. a place where sometimes you'll go and see something and it'll be like, that was really <laughs> shit. But it's that's what the place is about. It's about, it, this might be awful, this might be great, mm. but it's experimentational and we're allowed to fail. And here, especially musical theatre, is all about the money. It's right. all about kind of mm. desperately get, get, getting money and chopping yeah. corners. 
with no space to fail, no space to create things that might not work, but might spur on another idea. And we really need spaces dedicated to that. That's really, that's what he said to me. And I kind of was like, I suppose yes, we do. That's why there aren't now as many massive British musicals that yeah. um, even do well in London, let alone um, across the pond. Uh, the one that I'm thinking of that has done that is Six. Yes. But I suppose there haven't been many. So I, th- I think six was because it was in comparatively cheap to make. Mm, and yeah, you know, there's, yeah. you've got six actors with not really anything yeah. else. Yeah. You can take it to Edinburgh, you can move it around. Right. Big musicals take years, nine, ten years sometimes to right. create. And you have to fail at every single stop yeah. to create something new. And there's just not the money. And given there is for that. there is undoubtedly things out there or that have been out there that are out there right now that are just as good or like credible work. Mm that we, I suppose, don't see as much. I'm thinking specifically with musicals as mm. well. Um, I think that's, I, I resonate a lot with that, yeah. um, um, what Dominic was saying, yeah. It's interesting because there have been some musicals that have, I mean, I'm thinking particularly of something like Leave to Remain, which was mm. a musical that was, is it Kelly from Block Party? Uh, I haven't heard of it, actually. Uh, yeah, but that's the thing is that we we have some of these shows, which that was a, a queer show mm. about an interracial couple. Mm. Um, it, there's a concept album out of it, mm. but there's not very much else. But actually, I, I was lucky enough to see that at Lyric Hammersmith yeah. and the, the choreography in it, the direction. And again, you know, there was maybe there were things about it that you would think, OK, if this went on another stop, then this might be changed or yeah. that might be changed. But the, the problem is, is that we have these musicals mm. and nobody finds out about them. Yeah. Because, you know, and, and I would say that places like the Southwark Playhouse, mm. Lyric Hammersmith, yeah. The Other Palace, the Soho Theatre, mm-hmm. um, the Hope Mill Theatre up in Manchester. Yeah, really there's a few theatres that are really trying to do this work, but trying to, I suppose, it's difficult. And I, I understand this from talking to my students. You know, if you have a limited amount of money, mm. you want to spend the money on something that you know is going to be good. Of course. Mm. Whereas if you're going to these, and actually, I, I have to be honest, there's been very, very few shows that I've seen, and I've seen lots of shows for this book. There's very few shows that I've seen that I've walked out of going, that was absolutely awful. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay, been, that's good. There's yeah. been one or two, but there, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there hasn't been many. And actually, even the shows that I've thought have been absolutely awful, other people have enjoyed. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And it's, it's trying to find a way to encourage people to try out those venues, you yeah. know, to try things that are, are, are less well-known. Because yeah. I mean, that's how how six started, didn't it? it started up at Edinburgh. Yeah. Like, it could have been an absolute nightmare up Absolutely. there because <laughs> a lot for a lot of musicals, it is an absolute nightmare. But and then it's kind of gone through all of these other stages. And yeah, things. I guess in today's climate as well, with people having so little expendable money, yeah. that is now mm-hmm. kind of they'd much rather go see something they know is going to be good and they're mm-hmm. going to have a good time because it might be their only show in yeah. months, maybe in in the year. You know, so mm-hmm. it's really difficult to kind of encourage people to do that now. I guess it's harder. Mm. It's definitely up to things, I think, where we have showcases like West End Live, like the Olivier Awards. There's definitely room for those places. And I know that West End Live does this to some extent already. There's definitely room to try and um, showcase some of these shows. A lot of the shows I've picked up that I've seen have come from little showcase things Mm. at the other palace in the little studio or whatever it is. But then... I'm somebody that is privileged enough to be able to go to those things yeah. and find those things and knows where to look. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But it's, yeah, I'd love there to be a, a much more of a range of of um, stuff, I mean, particularly musicals. I'm thinking at mm-hmm. the moment that there's only one musical that I can think of on the West End that has a 
LGBTQ character that's anywhere close to being a lead. Okay. Um, what are you thinking? Of? I'm thinking of Anne Juliet. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I can't think of anything else at the mm. moment. Mm. Um, I mean, that's not great, is it? The industry is saturated by queer people, and yet we're not represented. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. There's a great organisation called Representation, which has just um, started up. I don't know if it's an organisation or a little group, but they're putting on concerts at the Phoenix Arts Club every so often, and Sick. it's trying to find. Yeah, right. I know there's a new musical going to Birmingham Rep called um, "To the Streets." I think about the Birmingham yes. bus boycott, which looks yeah, really yeah. cool. With that, mm. where Williams is involved with. Mm-hmm. I also do think it's up to there's the theatre community and the musical theatre community mm. here are quite split. In yeah. America, it's a little bit different, and I think places like the National, the RSC, the Almeida, that are kind of these big establishments that have kind of expendable money to be a bit more experimentational. I think definitely should be looking at creating because the idea of a musical it's a play with music it's you know especially (laughs) here there's a bit more of a hybrid and i think there is space to create something new where these those two worlds meet but it takes people to you know Mm. make a change and and take a risk i do also think as you were talking i was thinking of um something i'm guilty of is having a london-centric brain yeah um we were talking earlier about main character syndrome and i think I I feel like I can say this as a Londoner, <laughs> but I think Londoners we suffer from this. Um, um, in that, yeah, I I always think of theatre in the UK, or I primarily when I think of theatre in the UK, I think of London, yeah, not just West End, but London, yeah. Um, and uh, that's another thing that's uh, in terms of accessibility. I was lucky. I I think I I think of myself as lucky, but lucky enough to grow up in London. Mm. Um, so my journey to theatre might have been easier than someone who lived outside of oh London because it's yeah. so expensive to get yeah. here, let alone, um, you know, train in the industry. But yeah, that was just a thought that was on my mind as you were talking. I think that's I think that's really true. I mean, even mm. I live in Birmingham and actually I had heard of To The Streets, but I haven't booked a ticket for it. Yeah, and that's right, just right. that's just slapped me into thinking, actually, I do need to look at what is on in Birmingham yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than travelling down to London. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly good with knowing what's up in Manchester because I have friends mm. in Manchester and it's a place I visit quite often. But yeah, it, it, it is one of those one of those things that we have to kind of uh, kind of train ourselves to, yes, to change, definitely. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to I was going to ask you maybe one more question, which is and I, I heard you talking about this while I was fiddling with the machine to try and make it work. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> but I'm um, thinking about um, dream roles for you mm. to play. I mean, I think you were talking specifically about musical theatre, but mm-hmm. anywhere really. And, and what, what sort of roles would you like to play in the future? Um, so what we were discussing earlier was... Um, as a man in musical theatre who is not a tenor, <laughs> I feel Which like... we are not. <laughs> we are not. <laughs> I personally feel like there aren't many, um, like, dream roles for me mm. in musicals. Um, and I'm fine with that. Um, that's that's not my dream. Mm. So I'm cool with that. Um, so I don't know. For me, um, my current goal is to star... In an A24 production, yes. film or TV, I'll take either. Because yeah, um, <laughs> I just think A24, they do very interesting mm. films. Like the the most recent one we were talking about was Everything Everywhere oh, All at Once. But like that's just one example of their mm. great catalogue yeah. of stuff. Um, that is my next goal, mm. I would say. Excellent. 
I mean, similar to Tariqa, I'm not a tenor and I spent three years singing Old Man River every <laughs> bloody day when I didn't need to. That was your entire um, rep. Yeah, and then getting out into the industry and kind of being like, oh, I'm going to be leading musicals and going to auditions and then being so disappointed that I couldn't <laughs> sing above an F because that was my voice. Um, so yeah, musical theatre, I'm not really, I would love to play Snarvin in the Heights, but I'd like, mm, that's mm. kind of the only kind of place I can kind of see myself in. Mm-hmm. But um, similar to Tariq, I don't really have a kind of dream role. I am really enjoying discovering plays as I go and discovering yeah. my kind of place in them. Yeah. I love the theatre. I kind of want to be on stage forever, but obviously the money is on screen. So that's what I'm <laughs> focusing on right now. But so, yeah, A24, love. Yeah. I'd love to do kind of a Netflix show. I'd love to, yes. I just want to travel and act really and discover characters as I go I'd love to work with Taika Waititi as well I think he is such a I bet he's so visionary. fun to work yeah. with as well yeah. one thing Alanda said to me the other day and I was God, like oh, here we go. oh my gosh it's so true <laughs> I like we like doing being part of pieces that have something to say mm. um, and um, he was like I think it's not, that was a, it's not going to be a luxury. Not every single job you work on is going to have something to say that or that completely echoes something that you want to say to the world. Um, but ultimately, that's what I would like to continue doing: um, telling stories about people or subjects that are um, close to my heart. Yeah, I think because it's our identity too, I struggle mm. not to. I, yeah. I, because, you know, yeah. we are all of these things that we've spoken about. It's difficult not to go into them and talk about queerness or talk about race or talk yeah. about these things because it is who I am. So I'm kind of, I'm not sure about you, but I'm coming to terms with the fact that if you hire me, these conversations are just going to happen because that's yeah. my, that's who I am as a person. I think all, the same with queer, queer people and be interested to see, hear your other podcasts when you talk about Twitter mm. and trans actors, mm. kind of them, them coming to them and just, I'm going to make this role what it is if you hire me because that's who I am. And I think that's kind of what I want to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Thank you both so much for Thanks spending for some us. time. Thank you. And wonderful. for putting up with all of my <laughs> all of my technical inefficiencies. Technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> this was serendipitous. We weren't even sitting next to you originally at Legally Blonde. Right. And so <laughs> we moved down for a better seat next to you, so it was perfect. Oh, <laughs> meant to be excellent. I see if you come and sit next to me at the theatre, <laughs> who knows what the next step will be. <laughs> life will take you. Right. <laughs> next week on Represent, we're joined by Matthew Kuhn. Matthew was Billy in Billy Elliot at the Victoria Palace Theatre and is also a dancer, an actor, and potentially the next James Bond. There's no reason that James Bond could not be um, Chinese. There we go, perfect. Um, I'm not saying that James Bond would be a particularly strong LGBTQ role. They'd have to do, well, why not? (laughs) This episode will come out on Friday the 19th of August. See you there.